Section 30 of the Early Hanoverians by Edward Ellis Morris. This LibriVox recording is in the public domain. Recording by Pamela Nagami. Book 3, Chapter 2, Barclay and Oglethorpe. The reign of George II is famous for two philanthropic schemes, which are connected with the names of Bishop Barclay and of General Oglethorpe. This is not the place to discuss Barclay's philosophical doctrines, but it is right to give some account of the man to whom Pope assigned every virtue under heaven. He was of good family, born and educated in Ireland, being entered at Trinity College, Dublin, early in 1700, when he was only fifteen. He became a scholar, afterwards fellow, junior dean, and finally tutor. At this period he acquired his reputation as a philosopher. In the last year of Queen Anne's reign, Swift took Berkeley to court. In London he seems to have met most of the leading people. Swift introduced him to Lord Peterborough, who had just been appointed ambassador extraordinary to the King of Sicily. On Swift's recommendation, Berkeley went with Peterborough as chaplain and secretary. On the death of the Queen, Peterborough returned. But the travelling fit was on Berkeley, and he continued for some years travelling in different parts of Europe. In 1723, we find Berkeley strangely mixed up with the history of Swift. When Swift broke Vanessa's loving heart by the fierce look with which he flung down her letter of inquiry to Stella, Vanessa, Miss Esther Van Homrig, revoked a will by which she had left all her property to Swift, and in a new will, left her property to Barclay and another. It is to the credit of both that no quarrel arose between Swift and Barclay. Barclay tried to suppress the publication of Swift's letters to Vanessa. Shortly afterwards, Barclay was appointed Dean of Derby. Vanessa's bequest and the income of the deanery, however, inspired Barclay to carry out a project over which he had for some three years been brooding. It is said that the misery which Barclay saw in England upon his return from the continent, the result of the failure of the South Sea scheme, set his mind working to seek some way of benefiting and improving mankind. Barclay's scheme was to found a Christian university in Bermuda with the object of civilizing and converting America. The project seems to us wild, and so it seemed to his contemporaries, but their coldness melted before the fascinating enthusiasm of Barclay. Here is one familiar story. All the members of the Scribblerist Club, chief literary men of the day, having met at dinner, they agreed to rally Barclay, who was a guest, on his scheme at the Bermudas. Barclay, having listened to all the lively things they had to say, begged to be heard in his turn, and displayed his plan with such an astonishing and animating force of eloquence and enthusiasm that they were struck dumb, and after some pause, rose up altogether with earnestness, exclaiming, Let us all set out with him immediately. A still more extraordinary result of his zeal was that he persuaded Walpole to subscribe two hundred pounds, and to promise twenty thousand pounds from the exchequer if a bill passed. The bill did pass with only two dissentient voices. Walpole was quite astonished, and said that he had taken it for granted the very preamble of the bill would have secured its rejection. The following verses on the subject are the only verses preserved amongst the writings of Barclay. 
they give us some idea of the enthusiasm that has been described. On the prospect of planting arts and learning in America. The muse, disgusted at an age and clime barren of every glorious theme, in distant lands now waits a better time, producing subjects worthy fame. In happy climes where from the genial sun and virgin earth such scenes ensue, the force of art by nature seems outdone, and fancied beauties by the true. In happy climes the seat of innocence, where nature guides and virtue rules, where men shall not impose for truth and sense the pedantry of courts and schools, there shall be sung another golden age, the rise of empires and of arts, the good and great inspiring epic rage, the wisest heads and noblest hearts. Not such as Europe breeds in her decay, such as she bred when fresh and young, when heavenly flame did animate her clay, by future poets shall be sung. Westward the course of empire takes its way, the first four acts already passed, a fifth shall close the drama with the day, time's noblest offspring is its last. It is sad to add that all this enthusiasm was in vain. Barclay never went to the romantic Bermudas, though he went as far as America and sojourned at Newport in Rhode Island. Whilst there, some five years after the parliamentary vote, this answer was given by Sir Robert Walpole to one who on Barclay's behalf asked for the money. If you put this question to me as a minister, I must and can assure you that the money shall most undoubtedly be paid as soon as suits with public convenience. But if you ask me as a friend whether Dean Barclay should continue in America, expecting the payment of twenty thousand pounds, I advise him by all means to return home to Europe and to give up his present expectations. Shortly after Barclay's return, he was made Bishop of Cloyne. Though he had been an absentee as a dean, he was a model bishop, even according to our modern views of bishop's duties, for when once appointed bishop, he did not visit England again for about eighteen years, and seldom was present even in the Irish House of Lords. In the last year of his life, being in infirm health, he wished to live quietly at Oxford, and with that object he proposed to resign his bishopric. This proposal almost seems to have amused George II., who declared that Barclay should die a bishop in spite of himself, but that he might live where he pleased. At Oxford, after a few months, Barclay died. The story of his life gives the best idea of the sweetness of his character and the earnestness of his benevolence. Sufficient honor is not paid in history to the name of James Oglethorpe, who in the former half of the century anticipated the work which in the later half made Howard famous, and who, from philanthropic motives, founded the colony of Georgia. Oglethorpe is perhaps best remembered by the couplet of Pope. One, driven by strong benevolence of soul, shall fly like Oglethorpe from pole to pole. The family of Oglethorpe was of good social position. His father was a baronet. James Oglethorpe was born in the middle of 1689 and in the times of Jacobite excitement in the 18th century, when the ridiculous warming-pan story was believed. One version of it ran that a brother of Oglethorpe born in the previous year, was by the connivance of Lady Oglethorpe with the Queen, 
the child passed off to a credulous world as the Prince of Wales. During the great war that ended with the Treaty of Utrecht, Oglethorpe held a commission in the English army, though he was only an ensign when peace was proclaimed. Shortly afterwards, indeed in the month previous to the death of Queen Anne, he matriculated at Corpus Christi College, Oxford, but he could not have regularly continued his course, for in another two years he was acting as aide-de-camp to Prince Eugène in the war against the Turks, being present in that capacity at Peter Waradin and at the capture of Belgrade. We next find him occupying a family seat in Parliament and making his maiden speech on Atterbury's behalf against the Bill of Pains and Penalties. Oglethorpe had, through family connections, strong Jacobite sympathies, which were sometimes cast in his teeth, but he does not seem to have ever been actively disloyal. Early in the reign of George II, Oglethorpe came prominently before the House, demanding inquiry into the condition of the prisons. He was appointed chairman of a committee of inquiry. Many horrible revelations were made as to the state of the prisons, and especially of the fleet. Bribery was found to be common, and the prisoners who could not bribe were shamefully maltreated. As the result of the inquiry, prison officials were brought to trial for the murder of prisoners entrusted to their charge, but they managed to escape. New regulations for a while improved the condition of the prisons, but before many years they became again a disgrace to English civilization, and plenty of work was left for Howard. As another result of Oglethorpe's inquiry, many unfortunate prisoners for debt were released, but Oglethorpe's mind was much occupied with the consideration how the circumstances of these poverty-stricken debtors and others like them could be improved. The remedy that came was emigration to a new colony with special philanthropic laws, and the colony of Georgia was founded, a charter being obtained from George II, whose name was given to the colony. The colony was in the first place to be a refuge for the needy. In the second, it was to be a center of missionary influence upon the Indians, and it soon became the scene of the early missionary labors of the Wesleys and of Whitefield. The natives long remained upon very friendly terms with this settlement. A party of German Protestants, also persecuted on account of their religion by the emperor and driven from their home at Salzburg, took refuge in Georgia. The introduction of spirits was forbidden, and Oglethorpe caused a clause to be inserted in the charter absolutely prohibiting slavery. Oglethorpe himself, though holding a good position in England, being wealthy, sitting in Parliament, and on very friendly terms with the chief literary men, was appointed governor without salary. He went out with the first party of emigrants and chose Savannah as the capital of the colony. For twenty years, Oglethorpe continued to hold the office of governor, though he retained his seat in Parliament, made two intermediate voyages to England, and for the last ten years of his nominal governorship, never went back to Georgia at all. It must be to the three double voyages that Pope, with some exaggeration, alludes in the words from pole to pole. During the later part of Oglethorpe's stay in Georgia, there was war with Spain, and at that time, Florida, the neighboring province to Georgia, belonged to Spain. Oglethorpe conducted the local part of the war with skill, success, and moderation. 
the latter being specially displayed in diminishing the horrors connected with the employment of Indians as combatants. At the time of the forty-five, Oglethorpe, who in the early part of that year was made a general, had a body of recruits for a colonial regiment, the Georgia Rangers, ready for departure to the colony. The government gave orders that the ship on board of which they were should proceed to Hull, and that Oglethorpe and his men should march against Prince Charles Edward. This corps formed part of the force that marched to cut off the retreat of the pretender, and failing that, followed him northwards. Oglethorpe was in command of the skirmish at Clifton, and was afterwards tried by court-martial for the offence of lingering on the road. If it had not been for the general's known Jacobite sympathy, probably this insult would not have been put upon him. He was honourably acquitted, though strong anti-Jacobites maintained that he was not cleared from the charge. General Oglethorpe lived forty years longer to an honoured old age. Dr. Johnson and Goldsmith were amongst his friends and admirers. Edmund Burke paid him the remarkable compliment of calling him a more extraordinary person than any he had ever read of, for he had called a province into existence and lived to see it become an independent state. Oglethorpe lived to see American independence established, and his own Georgia one of the triumphant thirteen. But alas, Georgia, after his rule rapidly backsliding from its virtues, allowed the importation of spirits, and with the acquiescence of Whitefield, the introduction of slavery. Oglethorpe also lived to see the prison reforms of John Howard. It is exactly a century this year, 1885, since the old general died. He is reported by Macaulay to have said that when he was a boy, he had shot birds where Regent Street now stands. End of section 30